Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. Welcome at Talks at GS. I'm Harit Talwar. I run Marcus. Uh, we have today Ajay Banga, the president and CEO of MasterCard. Fortune magazine has called Ajay one of the most influential business leaders. The Indian government has given him an award called the Padam Shri, which is one of the highest civilian honors anybody can be given. Uh, Ajay has had a very successful career at MasterCard where during his tenure, the market cap of MasterCard has gone from 30 billion to around 240. In short, Ajay, you're a big shot. <laughs> and we are delighted to have you over here. That's, that's the, for those of you who work with Harit, that's his standard setup to make sure that you feel enough pressure to speak well. <laughs> so Ajay, let's get into, um, you took over as CEO of MasterCard around 2010 just at the end of the recession. We as a firm are very familiar during that period. Um, I came out of one that was familiar too, so I was at Citibank. Uh, Ajay was at Citi during the recession. Um, You become the CEO, uh, no matter how prepared, how much you've been thinking of it, you probably can never be fully prepared. Tell us the first few days. What do you decide? Now I'm the CEO, what happens? Well, the first few days were, uh, I, I did contemplate going back to Citigroup. <laughs> that was the first thing that happened. You go through what I would call cognitive dissonance, right? mm-hmm. and you kind of say, oh my God, what am I doing here? And that's the first thing that happens. Uh, the, the biggest change, Harit, is no matter how much you were doing in the prior firm, and no matter how senior you were or what role you had to play, Once you're the CEO, two things change completely. One is everybody who comes to your room has a reason to be there. There's an agenda in some way. There's nobody who comes to the room to shoot the breeze with you. And even if they're coming to shoot the breeze, they're not shooting the breeze. You might be. They've come there with something to get across to you. It could be something they need you to understand better. It could be something they need your help with. This is not bad stuff, it's good stuff. But you're, on the other hand, therefore, constantly getting influencing messages coming into you. And you have to dissect those and segregate them and find your way through these very often conflicting signals. And people describe that as being it's lonely at the top. I don't think it's lonely at the top. I think if you take people with you with transparency and open communication, it's not lonely you have to know how to sift through the things that come your way. And they come at the pace of 30,000 miles every minute. It's just coming at you all the time. It's it's like an incoming missile system. That's the one biggest change. Hmm. The second biggest change is that uh, you actually don't know who to, it's like, you know, you were in, in one of plenty, you had people who talked to you and I were colleagues, I could call you and ask for help and advice. It gets harder when you're the CEO. And you start looking outside the company for that, which itself is challenging when you're privy to information that others cannot know. And so managing your way through uh, how you get the right outside influences so your mind stays open 
and your feet stay on the ground and you remain humble is probably one of the biggest challenges. It's not the first three, four days. It's definitely within the first three or four months that that starts to get you as well. Uh, how did you make sure that, okay, these are the three or four things I really want to do, or this is how I'll anchor myself and not let others drive my yeah. agenda? So I mean, one, one thing that certainly worked for me was to not be in a hurry to proclaim that I knew what I wanted to do. And I didn't, I just believe that if you try and do something, you know, in politics they tell you what are you going to do in the first 100 days? I'm not sure that's what you need to do when you're an outsider coming into a company. I think if you were inside the company and you became CEO, that's a slightly different thing. You already have your mindset, you've got ideas, you've got people, you've got a network, you've got knowledge, you know what worked, what didn't work, you've got preconceived notions. But if you come from outside, carrying your preconceived notions with you from outside would be a very bad idea. And so you have to give people a chance to speak about their strengths, their weaknesses, their concerns, their problems. Listen very carefully. In fact, you know, I, I say this to everybody in our company that we're in a, in a business where technology is changing all the time and some people think that technology changes very quickly on you. I actually don't believe that. I believe you can see technology changing over a period of time. You may not have figured it out. You may not have seized it. That's your fault. It's not the fault of technology. It's coming. You know that AI is coming for some years now. Yeah. It will suddenly pick up pace one day. And at that time, if you say, oh my God, AI has changed everything in the last one year, you're the fool, not AI. It's coming. You can read about it for the last so many years. And so technology is not the issue. It's your openness to embrace it and your ability to comprehend and yet make quick decisions, but after listening. So the single biggest thing I did well now in retrospect was I listened. I paid attention to what people had. I listened to what they were doing. I had some ideas very quickly about what I didn't like or what I wanted to change, but I kept quiet. Everybody wants your attention at the beginning. Investors want your attention. The board wants your attention. Employees want your attention. Customers want your attention. Your family wants your attention. Your friends want to know what you're up to. It's, a, it's the nature of what you sign up for. So how do you manage the 24 hours? You basically don't carry your phone with you everywhere. I, uh, I would tell you, this is the truth, you know this to me, because and I go out on, if I go out in the evening with friends for dinner, rather than if we go out together, I don't have my phone. I don't and you don't it. get a withdrawal symptom. Some of us in no, no, this I get, get I a get withdrawal joy. symptom. I get joy out of the damn thing not being with me. Eh? If, I could, if I could throw it away, I would throw it away. So the thing he, is, here's one he good thing. He did recommend doing that during the talk in the green so room. They said he should switch off the phone. He said, if you want, I can throw it away. <laughs> I, I believe that, that, like everything else with technology and with social media and phones and the like, they, you can't let them run your life. So I don't take that phone with me on the, on, when I'm out by myself. On holidays, uh, my wife kind of has a deal with me, which is, I think it's called the yes dear deal, right? Which is, I say yes dear and she tells me what to do. So the, the, the scene is that I put the phone into the safe in the hotel, she locks it. And I get two opportunities in the day to see the phone. One is around 7.30 in the morning and one is around four o'clock, both are times when nobody else in the family is interested in me. And so, so if you work for me, you'll find on a weekend or a holiday, you'll get a burst of answers from me around 8, 8.30 in the morning and then five o'clock in the evening. That's because that's the only time I get the phone. 
I finished it and I put it back. You know, for good or bad, uh, we in this firm are such email junkies, so I'm sure there are ripples of inspiration and panic spreading across <laughs> the audience. <laughs> but you talked about technology, so let's pivot to technology. Um, uh, MasterCard processes, what, a few trillion dollars worth of transactions each year. Yeah. You do it across 200 countries. Um, one can talk about feature functionality, but it's critical <coughs> that your systems are up. You know, four nines, complex. <coughs> How does your organization manage scale engineering platforms with high reliability? What lessons have you guys learned? What mistakes have you made? What can we learn from that? So one of the ways they manage it really well is with me not interfering. <laughs> and I think you probably understand that well, that when you start interfering with stuff that you don't know enough about, you will generally screw up things. I, uh, we've got a really, really good bunch of people who care deeply about the way our technology was built. One of the things my predecessor did 15 years ago, 14 years ago, was to take a bunch of hybrid different systems. Each uh, region in MasterCard used to be an independent fiefdom before the IPO. The IPO was only 11 years ago. The company is 50 years old. So for the previous 40 years, it was owned by the banks. And it is an association. And it's where bankers went when they were sent to pasture. And uh, it's not a bad life. And they came there. And, and uh, it, it, that group of people had technology for Europe different from other regions, for example. He put it all together. State of the art, it's a mixture of a centralized system with distributed servers. And in today's world, that would be called a hybrid technology of the best and most recent varietal. We've invested in it over the years, not just for its upkeep and capacity, but also to keep adding new things. In fact, I would tell you the one thing I look back on a decade of being here as CEO, and I feel really good about, is the fact that we have kept the core business and grown it many times over, but we've also diversified our business with all kinds of new properties and products and information analytics and AI and cybersecurity and loyalty and rewards kind of stuff, while also transforming the culture of the company from being, we sell core products, credit, debit, prepaid kind of stuff, to we do all these things in technology and data. And so we've done this combination of moving an old tech stalwart to, I think, a newer tech company without losing the old tech stalwart. Both you personally and MasterCard have been very passionately talking about cashless society and financial inclusion. For most of us in this room, we don't understand how does cashless society lead to financial inclusion? Why is it good? Is it a social activity? Is it a for-profit motive? Talk to us more about how does all that converge? So, I, I, look, uh, no corporation can conduct a philanthropic activity in its main business because you are responsible to your employees and customers and shareholders. You can't kind of mix those things up. But if you can find a way to do all this while making it a part of your business, even if the returns come differently in the first few years, but they connect to your main purpose and goal, then you get the value of bringing the corporation's balance sheet, technology, people, creativity to the party. So why all that? There's two billion people in the world who don't have access to what we take for granted, an identity, a bank account, 
a way of proving, you know, you hire a car, you give them a driving license and your credit card. If you don't have a driving license, let alone a credit card, how do you hire a car? If you want to get a phone in this country and you land here from, you know, on a boat, uh, like I did when I was 30-something years old with Citibank, I couldn't get a phone because I didn't have a credit history. So today it's become a little better than that, but credit histories in this country are still the starting point. And the problem with credit histories is most of them are backward-looking. The inadequate numbers of credit histories that are forward-looking and thinking. So there's a whole system that's built that people who are included take for granted. It facilitates their life. But these other two billion don't have it. So two billion people don't have Roughly. it. Roughly. Mm. Give or take. You know, people say the latest estimate is a billion and a half. There's no way to make those estimates correctly. These are all studies done by academics based on a lot of sampling. Yeah, I would say it's a lot of people. It's a lot of zeros. And the problem is they are zeros. Because if you don't have an identity, you don't get counted. Your opinion doesn't get taken in a research that says, what should this country do next? You just, you're left out. And this is not an emerging markets issue. In the United States, between 25 and 40 million people are underbanked or unbanked. In developed Europe, around 70 to 80 million people are underbanked or unbanked. It is true that in Africa and in India and in other places, there is a serious issue of a different dimension. But it's true even in the developed world. One of the big things which everybody is scared of, whether a professional or a layperson, is this whole broad area of cybersecurity. Uh, everybody's scared, everybody's accounts have been hacked, don't know what's happening when. You've been on a presidential commission in the United States on how to safeguard uh, the country and the country's key assets. Now, I'm not suggesting you're a cybersecurity expert, but uh, you have provided thought leadership on what we need to do. So talk to us a little bit both at an organization level and maybe at a country level. How dangerous this is or is this more hype than danger and what are some of the simple basic things which go a long way? So look, first of all, um, technology and data we were talking about financial inclusion a minute ago, and we were talking about reaching these people, whether it is micro-entrepreneurs for access to credit or it's mm. individuals. Today, we've reached 380 million people out of the 2 billion, one company with its partners. And we'll I made a promise to reach 500. So you've reached how many? 380 million, wow. according to inclusion. I just signed a deal in Mexico to reach 20 million. So that's uh, bigger than the size of the U.S. population. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, they spend much less. I lose money on that whole thing. Small amounts of money. Mm. But what's happening is I'm changing the way those people interact with the income they get, the pension they get, the social benefits they get. And I think over time that changes the way that cash operates in an economy. And that's extremely beneficial for our company. So I've managed to find a way here to get this to match with us and do well and do good at the same time. But we do things with that technology, and that's why I'm leading to the cyber, that help with microfinancing for small entrepreneurs, most of whom are women, to, uh, to pay as you go methods for solar energy or education, again, impacting women mostly, mm -hmm. to, uh, to doing things with farmers and how they can interact. All that's through technology and data. The problem is the power of this technology, the power of the Internet of Things, the power of what was dreamt up many years ago by Tim Berners-Lee when he worked on the internet. Although a lot of people claim credit for inventing the internet, some of whom shall remain unnamed. <laughs> but the, the fact that he 
that these guys did this, it's unbelievably empowering. It's the ultimate democracy at work. The problem with that is, it's also all pervasive. Mm. So it's in these devices that talk to each other, it's in your television with a camera on it, it's in your phone with, with search engines that listen and talk, it's with you know, your device that you want to talk to to say, unlock my door. It's the Barbie doll that's got artificial intelligence built into it to learn how to interact with your child. These are outstanding. It's the, the good users, your grandmother and a medication. There's so many things. There's right. so much in this technology. What could hold it back is the danger of it being misused. The danger of the data being misused is now transparent to everybody. I've been talking about this issue of data being misused for five years and nobody used to listen. And guess what? We get hit by Cambridge Analytica and it becomes sort of everybody's tip of the tongue conversation. But like I said about technology, you can see it coming, you ignore it. Which part of your data being used by others was not clear to you five years ago? When you sign up for a weather app and you click I agree and it accesses your contacts, which part of that was not clear to you? And so, unfortunately, people take convenience over security take the cool factor over this. And they assume that we are keeping them safe and secure. We, the device manufacturer, we, the bank, we, the company, we, the government. Somebody, we, mm. not them, we. Yeah. That is a, that's a near and clear and present danger. And that's why you look at passwords. Every institution asks you to have a password. Goldman will have a password. Your travel agent will have a password, your travel desk will have a password. You have multiple passwords, you've got a single sign-on, maybe at work, but you've got plenty of other passwords with your frequent flyer, with your bank, with your school, with your alma mater. So what do people do? And the passwords, by the way, change on different days of the month just to keep you secure. That's mm. nonsense. Mm. You can't remember those passwords. So what do you do? You remember, you know, Goldman won. That's not very clever. <laughs> or you remember, oh, I want to be really clever. I'm going to do Goldman with a capital G1. Oh, that's... With an exclamation mark. That's dumb too. <laughs> or hashtag Goldman1. None of those work. Because a kid, a 10-year-old kid with a computer can hack into you. And they do. So the problem is passwords, taking some, uh, security for granted, the weakest link being the consumer and the small business. If you think your mm. dentist is trying to protect your information when you fill up that form and tell them everything about yourself to get your teeth drilled, mm. that ain't happening. So, so uh, that's the issue. So you're making me feel very scared. You should be. This is the one topic that I think you should be very thoughtful about. Yes. Because I believe individuals have to drive the change. And, and there are some things governments can do. So you're it, saying the mindset that each person, uh, but, uh, we are right now you're uh, suggesting we might be in a state of denial that just because somebody is a professional organization, they'll know how to keep our security. We need to manage it ourselves. And it starts with the basics of how we keep passwords. That's one part of it. Hmm. The other part of it is that, that even if you're a professional organization, the guys who are coming at you are spending way more money than even you can spend to keep your customers safe. Because it's an unequal fight. Hmm. There's countries, nation states, mafia, criminals, all coming at you. There is no common idea of what constitutes good behavior on the web uh, across countries. So, you know, in traffic, 
you drive on a certain side of the road, your car has a seat belt, you give mirror signal maneuver, all that jazz. On the internet, there are no rules, it's the wild west. And I think that's why companies today and the tech giants are coming around to saying we should have regulations. Well, they didn't believe that till now. <laughs> now they do because it's time to have that change. Better late than never, Yes. you should do it. Third, you need public-private partnerships. Goldman, MasterCard, Facebook, Google, Microsoft cannot spend enough money to fight off the guys at the other end. We need to have the right public-private partnerships to both prepare for these things, but also manage our way through this. So, for example, we've, uh, along with Sam Parmesano, ex of IBM, and Satya of Microsoft, and Penny Pritzker, the former Commerce Secretary, we have floated a 501c3 called the Cyber Readiness Institute. We're preparing tools to allow, uh, to be given free to small businesses. So you raise the level of water in the river. Mm. You know, after all, your kid's school isn't protecting your data. But you're all giving your data to them for them to pull the bank account to pay for your child's education. How do you feel about that? Or Con Ed has your right. bank account to pay for Alexity. How do you feel about that? So the whole thing here is, We've got to create enough tools for small businesses. Your Conrad is a big company. Your kid's school is not. Yeah. You've got to get enough tools for them to be able to fight that. And secondly, create enough incentive in the system for consumers to feel that they should be in charge. And third, and this is the most important thing, we have to commit to putting consumers back in control of their, their data. That is the only right way to do it. Every other way, lobbying, not lobbying, bills, politics, we should stop this and agree that a consumer deserves to own their data and then go from there. Um, so Ajay, um, MasterCard is one of the most recognized brands in the world. And we heard a few weeks ago or maybe a few months ago. We zapped the name. You took out the name and now it's just the logo. What's the deal? What's the deal over here? Was it a tough decision? Walk us through the thinking process for that or is it just a um, minor decision? So, so we're a B2B company. Uh, you know, we're your partner with Apple. Mm -hmm. We are not the one who actually issues the card. Mm -hmm. We are not the one who has the distribution infrastructure to deliver that card or that digital experience to people. But yet we have a brand because of our B2B to see, look through, of what you pull out at the point of sale, the moment of truth. And that brand over the years has been invested in beautifully with this priceless campaign. You gotta think about the future, out 10 years on brands. Now you combine that with the fact that when you write the MasterCard name under the two logo circle, to create that one composite thing in a little phone. You know, you got a little phone this size. To create that, to fit MasterCard, you lose the space for the circles. But it's the circles they were recognizing, not the name. Not the name. So I struggled with that for a while. I did a second round of research, did a third round of research. I kept disbelieving the research until finally I said, there must be something these guys know that I don't know. And took the plunge, and I think it's the best thing we did, but it worked out well. But now we only have the two circles. Now, in some markets where the brand is not as well known, we will stay with the MasterCard. There'll be a phase-in of all this. The card in your wallet will change when it gets reissued. But we're going towards that. Excellent. Let me open it up to questions. Um, Omar. So, um, thank you for coming, Ajay. Um, immigration has been a very hot topic in this country, as you know, uh, all the way from illegal immigration and the wall on the, on the southern border, as well as what, you know, your, um, 
you know, entrepreneurs and, and businessmen like you at very senior technology firms have said about skilled immigration and how the U.S. is losing out relative to a lot of developed countries like Canada and others. So I'm just wondering your views on the topic, you know, looking sure. at both aspects sure. of it. My point of view is, for a minute, let's keep aside those who are already here. That's the DACA and the and also the illegal immigrants who are here. Just put that aside for a second because that colors the conversation. If you are where you are and you're trying to figure out for our country going forward what a methodical way is to go forward, there are many more intelligent ways to manage immigration than what we're doing today. From the skills we want, uh, the fact that there are so many students who come and study here at a subsidized rate which taxpayers in America subsidize, and then we let them go back to their home country because we don't give them a visa to stay, makes no sense to me. It's really not tough to figure that one out. Then there's immigration of not that high quality of education, but immigrants we need. Uh, there are jobs that local people would not want to do because they've graduated in their minds to a new level and a new category. Immigrants tend to work hard and make their life for their children. It's the truth of immigration in this country since Ellis Island opened. I'm actually getting the Ellis Island Medal of Honor in a few days, and I believe in this. When you go there and you see it, you see immigrants who came who were doctors and lawyers in their home country, drove a cab, but their children are doing really well. And the story of immigration everywhere is of coming for a better life. I believe that people are scared in my kind of job to discuss these societal issues. You shouldn't be scared. You should be clear, open, and decent, and transparent about these issues. And after that, it's a public debate. I don't have the right to decide. I wasn't elected to my job by the people. I was chosen by a board of some people who decided I should become the CEO. I'm not an elected representative. That's a political person's job, and they cannot sidestep their job and allow it to become a debate for companies and individuals to decide on. That is abdication of your responsibility. And that's what needs to be addressed, and people like us need to be willing to say that in a good way, in a constructive way, because I mean it with constructive. I came to this country and gave up my Indian passport because I care deeply about what I've got here. I look like me and I run a company that it's in the top 30 in the world in market cap today. That's a pretty cool thing for a guy like me. I came out of no education in the United States. All my education is in India. I've never been to a training course with either Citibank or Pepsi or Nestle or MasterCard in an overseas place. I still have a chance to speak with all of you. That's what this country gave me. It gave my children a chance to be who they are. So it's a great country. That means that we have a right to speak about it. That's why I came to a democracy. And I will not be stifled. <laughs> With that, thank you very much, Ajay. This podcast was recorded on April 5th, 2019. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. 
The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.